Now tonight we're going to be in Esther chapters 8, 9, and 10. We're going to finish the book of Esther. One chapter is fairly short, one's average, and one's only a few verses. So we're going to be wrapping up Esther tonight. And as we come to the book of Esther, we've we come to that timeline about 485 B.C. It's modern Iran, uh, the Medo-Persian Empire. She's the queen. We've studied how she came to power. She won the beauty contest, if you will. Her husband, Artaxerxes, is this amazingly powerful king. He rules over 127 provinces, probably at least uh, eight time zones that he's over, and all the way to India and you know to Jerusalem, and extremely powerful, powerful king. And in the midst of that, his number two man was Haman, his right-hand man, and Haman had the conflict with Mordecai the Jew because Mordecai wouldn't bow down to him, and so he despised Mordecai. He had all these blessings in his life, but he just couldn't enjoy his wife, his ten kids, and all the wealth that he had because one man wouldn't bow down to him, Mordecai the Jew. And because of that, he came up with the decree. He convinced Artaxerxes to decree a law to allow all the Jews to be eradicated from the entire empire. So basically, ethnic cleansing against the Jewish people, which is nothing unusual because ethnic cleansing is a part of human history. But it's a bad decision just from an economic standpoint because the Jews were extremely successful commerce people for his, you know, for his kingdom. So it's a bad economic decision, let alone moral one as well. But he did it not really thinking about it. And then... He finds out later, of course, the story of Esther, where she risked her life, goes into the king, and he finds out from his wife, eventually through her going in, the second night, the banquet feast with her and Haman, she reveals that she's a Jew, and Haman is the evil man who wants to destroy her and her people. So we left off on the heels of that, where that event happens, they cover Haman's face, and they hang Haman on the very gallows, the hangman's noose that he had built for Mordecai. And we talked about this, as a man sows, so shall you reap, cause and effect. Jesus said, the measure you judge will be judged of you. And literally, Haman brought it on himself and really his entire family. That's where we left off. So we come forward from that tonight. But remember, there's still a decree out there for the annihilation of the Jewish people throughout the entire Medo-Persian Empire that's still on the calendar and in people's day planners. And they have lots of enemies who want to do that to them. And so that's where we pick up the text tonight in chapter 8. And on that day, King Artaxerxes gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told how he had, was related to her. So the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman. It's the ring of power in the king's name. And he gave it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed Mordecai over the house of Haman. Now Esther spoke again to the king, fell down at his feet, and implored him with tears to counteract the evil of Haman, the Agai, and the scheme which he devised against the Jews. And the king held out the golden scepter toward Esther. So Esther arose and stood before the king and said, If it pleases the king, and if I found favor in his sight, and the thing seems right to the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agai, which he wrote to annihilate the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the evil that will come to my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my countrymen? Then Artaxerxes said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, Indeed, I've given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he tried to lay hand on the Jews. 
You yourselves write a decree concerning the Jews as you please in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring for whatever is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's signet ring, no one can revoke. So the king's scribes were called at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews, the satraps, the governors, those in authority, the princes of the provinces from India to Ethiopia. 127 provinces in all to every province in its own script to every people in their own language and the Jews in their own script and language. And he wrote it in the name of King Artaxerxes, sealed it with the king's signet ring, and sent letters by couriers on horseback, riding on the royal horses, bred from swift steeds. By these letters, the king permitted the Jews who were in every city to gather together and protect their lives, to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would assault them, both little children and women, and to plunder the possessions of, uh, on the one day in all the provinces, King Artaxerxes, on the 13th day and on the 12th month, with is the month of Adar. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province and published for all people so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers who rode on royal horses went out, hastened and pressed on the king's command, and the decree was issued in Shushan, the citadel. So Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in the royal apparel of blue and white with a, gold, with a great crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple, and the city of Shushan, that was the capital they were at, they rejoiced and it was glad. The Jews had light and gladness, joy and honor, and in every province and in city, wherever the king's command decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a holiday. Then many of the people of the land became Jews because the fear of the Jews fell upon them. We're moving toward that holiday of Purim. This is where it's going to end, which is still celebrated by the Jews to this day, 2,500 years later in the early part of March every year. It's amazing. It's just so amazing when you really think about that. But here the story goes forward because the king, he can't revoke the law he already made. He, he, just, he can't say I, that law is no good. It's kind of like a Supreme Court thing. It, 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 the king's thing, once it's in place, it's in place. We saw this with the Babylonians, uh, excuse me, with uh, Daniel in the lion's den as well, with Darius, the king. Sa same thing. The decree went out and he couldn't change it, so Daniel spent the night with the lions and the binding law. And there's strength in that when they're good laws, but there is weakness in that when they're bad laws. Now, remember, when that law was made with Haman and the king, the people there in Sushan, the capital, like, remember we read this, that, well, Haman and the king were drinking alcohol, and they were married, and then Haman's like, hey, let's do this to the Jews. He's like, we'll kill them all, and you'll make a bunch of money. And it's like, oh, okay. So, you know, yet again, our churches made a bad decision under alcohol, which is what we saw him do with Vashti, his first queen, that he made a bad decision under alcohol. But he made that decision. But we read that the city was perplexed. They're like, what, what, like what's, who even makes a law like this? We're, things are good right now in the Medo-Persian Empire. And why are we doing this? This makes no sense. So it's pretty cool at the end of this chapter to see the people rejoicing, the same people who are perplexed by a bad decree, rejoicing for a new decree. So you couldn't really eradicate the first decree. It stands, but they made a new law that strengthened the Jews, to defend themselves against the first decree. So technically, if people wanted to go try and kill the Jews, they had the law to do it, but now the Jews had the right to defend themselves and protect their wealth, their family, their possessions, their right to exist. So that's really what happened here, and it's pretty... Uh, it's, it's, it's 
it's a heavy story, right? I mean, it's a pretty serious topic when you really think about it. One people group trying to annihilate another people group. But we all know this is human history. You know, before any people came here from the Western world, one Indian group was trying to wipe out another Indian group all over the United States of America. That's what Indian tribes do. They would conquer one and absorb them. This, is, this has gone on all over the world. In the Asiatic people groups, this is, you know, the Middle East, this is Africa. Oh, my goodness. The history of Africa is just essentially this, where tribes annihilate other tribes and absorb what's left of the tribe into their tribe, and they take on the identity of the tribe. This is human history. That's why reparation would never, ever work, because who really is the ultimate owner of anything, of any land anywhere? For example, you know, you hear a lot of reparation things in, a, in America right now. All these people say, oh, we need reparation for this and that. Well, just say, for example, the Indians. So Andrew Jackson, when he was president in the Trail of Tears, where he moved all the Indians over toward Oklahoma and whatnot, amongst those Indians was the Seminoles. And of course, you know, you probably know the Florida State Seminoles from football, the Seminoles, their identity, the Seminoles. But you probably don't even know this. Seminoles are not from Florida. Seminoles are a migrant Indian group that went down to Florida in the 1700s, 1600s, 1700s, and conquered the Indian groups in Florida. They conquered them. And then Andrew Jackson conquered the Seminoles and made them move to Oklahoma and across the Trail of Tears. So when you're rep- if you're giving, uh, you know, re- repairing things and making things right, the Seminoles don't get Florida. There's Indian people that were there before then. But who was there before them? See, it just, it just kind of goes on and on. And so when we look at a story like this, it's like, this is a heavy thing that a law to eradicate genocide against one people group against another, which we even saw in Rwanda just 30 years ago with the Hutsis and the Tutsis. The famous movie Hotel Rwanda captures all that quite well. There's nothing new under the sun. What stands out in this chapter for us in application, though, is this phrase found in verse 5 that written to revoke the letters devised by Haman. So they can't change the bad law that's in place, but they can create a new law that can usurp it or give authority to come against it, withstand it, and, and, and repel it. So they've empowered the one to do what needs to be done. All right, so, so here we go. This phrase, revoke the letters devised by Haman. Now you think, okay, you younger people might say, what do you mean when you're revoking something? What do you mean by revoking? What's, what's it mean to revoke? It's to undo something that's already in place. I'll give you an example. I was involved in a situation years ago where someone had power of attorney, unlimited power of attorney, and they were going to use it to undermine hundreds of thousands of dollars of wealth. Well, someone had to get a letter of revocation against the power of attorney. So they had to go to a lawyer and get a letter to revoke the power they'd given the person that was about to do these things. And that would be a revocation of a power of attorney. And so you have a document that says power of attorney. This person can do all these things in this person's name with this property, this wealth, and these things. But then you get another, you, you get another document, and then it goes public in the, the legal realm of, of a county or a city. And it says now that's revoked. It means it can't happen. So the idea of revoking is doing... Fixing a bad decision with a good decision, which brings us to the new year. New year's a great opportunity to revoke bad decisions if we've made bad decisions. So you, you might say, well, it's not a power of attorney or revoking power of attorney, but if you made the wrong decision in a relationship, 
and you're going down the road in that relationship, you realize this is not a good thing. <laughs> when you break off that relationship, it's like revoking that relationship in a way. When you've made a bad financial decision, rather than sticking with a bad financial decision and continuing to go a direction, you say, you know what, we're going to cut our losses, we're going to revoke this decision, we're going to sell this thing, or we're going to trade this thing, or stop selling these stocks, like, we're, we're going to revoke it. The whole idea behind revoking is you recognize that a bad thing, a bad decision is in place, and you need to change it. Someone has to change a bad decision and replace it with a good one. And that's what we have the idea there. So Esther risked her life yet again to go before the king and touch the scepter. And this time to get something written that would offset for good what was written for bad. And so that's the idea behind revoking. You, you, you fix it. And so I would just say this in our lives personally, in our own personal lives. And I would even say legally in some cases. Because sometimes you make... Oh, it's, I won't even go there, but you, 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 if, you made, if you know you've made a bad decision, in my own personal life, I'll give an example. Years ago, when we moved back from Vermont in 1996, we were living with my mother-in-law who had terminal cancer. Jennifer was pregnant, my wife, with our fifth child, uh, Luke. And she was overwhelmed. She's in her first trimester. She's taking care of her mom who's going through chemo. And I need to provide some income. I'm not pastoring a church. I'm just trying, I'm doing guest speaking. I'm living off 1099s, if you will. Like, whatever I get paid, no set honorarium, going out, making myself available for anything that the Lord opened up. And it, it wasn't working. So I approached my brother's former boss in the flower business, because I'd worked in the flower business previously as well, and I asked him for a job. So I show up at 6 in the morning. I'm the only white guy. It's all Latinos. It's cold. It's a flower packing house in Vista. And I'm in there in my 30s, making bouquets. I know the drill. It's assembly line bouquets. They go out to Albertsons, you know, Ralph's and all these places. And I'm just, I'm just trying to generate revenue to put food on the table, if you will, literally. And I had the job for about a week. And it was just too much for Jennifer to be taking care of her mom and being in her first trimester. Also, Timmy was only like two and a half. Not even that, because her two and three-fourths apart. And then Leah's only like four, and Hannah's six. We went six, four, two, that, pretty much. And I'm like, I got to do this. I got to create money. I got to create income. I got to figure something out. And then the Lord just woke me up this one morning. I'd only been doing the job for a week, but it's just, it's just too much. And I, the Lord's like, you have to quit that job. You can't do this. And I remember going into Tom Reedy at the time, who was the boss, who gave me the job. I begged him for the job. And then I got to go in there and tell him, I can't do the job. And I just say, Tom, thank you so much. I just, I can't do this. I'm not, I don't know how it's going to work. I'll beg for money from my dad. I'll beg for money from Brian Burson. I'll find somebody, but I, I can't do this. My wife can't do this. I cannot leave my wife at 6 a.m. every morning in her first trimester with three little kids and her mom with terminal illness and caring for her mom in a hospice situation. And he was great. He blessed me. And I, went, I revoked the job. You see, I made this decision. It seemed like the be if a man doesn't work, let him not eat. You know, I know those passages on a day like that. But you just realize, like, I, I, gotta ch I just can't. This, I got, when you can know what you don't know, you fall back on what you do know. I don't know how God, the Lord's going to provide. I just know I can't get up at 6 a.m. and leave my wife at home in this situation. And I got to find another solution. 
So what I bring to application for us, if you know you've made some bad decisions and you're married to those bad decisions because you don't want to lose face or because you, you got to do this or that because we like to let our yes be yes and our no be no. Well, listen, sometimes your yes is the wrong decision. And I tell people all the, you know, fairly often on this one, the only thing worse than, well, there's things worse than that. But when you make a decision that you felt was the right decision and you know you don't have the peace of God in it and you know it's the wrong decision, you've got to correct it. They say the worst thing you can do with finances is stay married to an investment that's a bad investment because you're too prideful and, and too stubborn to admit you lost that one. You know, you lose with money sometimes. You lose in stocks. You lose in precious metals. You lose in crypto and you lose in real estate. Sometimes you're just on the wrong end. The smartest people in the world draft athletes every year for their sports teams, and the best ones make the wrong pick fairly often. It just goes that way. But the real compound effect of a bad decision is to stay married to it in stubbornness and pride and not revoke that decision and make it right to just accept your losses, however you have to save face, whatever it is, but make it right and go on from it. That's what you got to do. That's what you got to do. And so I was thinking about with the new year, maybe are there things I need to revoke or are there things we need to revoke when you make bad decisions and you're unsettled and it particularly happens with money when you're unsettled. You're like, ah, ah I can't sleep. And like, oh, we just, got, we just got to get this money back and put it out of that and put it over here. Like, listen, Jesus said he'll give us peace that surpasses understanding, he, not as the world gives. And Paul said it's the peace that surpasses all understanding. This was a really bad law affecting a lot of people. And if you'd made bad decisions that affect you and your family and your loved ones, then do whatever it takes to fix it. Revoke it and replace it with a better decision. Now, we read on. A lot of this content in chapter 8, we'll get in chapter 9, so we'll get some application about the whole, the decree to protect, to destroy, and all that stuff. So we move on now to chapter 9. Now, that was the power, the revocation, the letters to replace the bad letter to, to give him an opportunity to do the right thing. That's what we saw right there. Now, in the 12th month, that is the month of Adar, on the 13th day, the time came for the king's command and his decree to be executed. On the day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, the opposite occurred, and that the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. The Jews gathered together in their cities throughout the provinces of King Arasuras to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could withstand them, because the fear of them fell upon all people, and all the officials of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and all those doing the king's work helped the Jews, because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. For Mordecai was great in the king's palace, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For this man, Mordecai, became increasingly prominent. Thus the Jews defeated all their enemies with the stroke of the sword and with slaughter and destruction, and did what they pleased with those who hated them. And in Shushan, the citadel, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. Also, Porshadatha, Dalphon, Aspta, Portha, Adaliah, Aridatha, Parmashta, Arasiah, Aradiah, and Bazezta, the ten sons of Haman, the sons of Hamadad, the enemy of the Jews, they killed, but they did not lay hand on the plunder. On that day, the number of those who were killed in Shushan, the citadel, who brought, uh, was brought to the king, that number was brought to the king, and the king said to Queen Esther, 
The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men in Shushan, the citadel, and the 10 sons of Haman. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your petition? It shall be granted to you. Or what is your further request? It shall be done. Then Esther said, If it pleases the king, let it be granted to the Jews who are in Shushan to do again tomorrow according to today's decree, and let Haman's 10 sons be hanged on the gallows. So the king's commanded, the king commanded this to be done. The decree was issued in Shushan, and they hanged Haman's ten sons. And the Jews who were in Shushan gathered together again on the 14th day of the month of Edar and killed 300 men in Shushan, but they did not lay hand on the plunder. The remainder of the Jews, the king's provinces, gathered together and protected their lives and had rest from their enemies and killed 75,000 of their enemies, but they did not lay hand on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Edar, in the 14th of the month, they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. Now, so let's think about this decree one more time, what's going on here. Let me, let me, having talked about reparation of lands and people, let's talk about Israel right now, okay, as a nation. First of all, Father Abraham is the father of the Jews, and God promised him the modern land of Israel. Those borders include the Sinai Peninsula all the way into northern Israel towards Syria and Lebanon. The borders are very easy to define. They go all the way to the Jordan River, what is considered the West Bank, the Golan Heights, and Gaza. God promised to the sons of Abraham 4,000 years ago that land was theirs forever, a perpetual covenant. Through the son of promise, Isaac, and all Jews identify with being descendants of Isaac, the son of promise. Thus, their claim to the land for 4,000 years. So even when they're overrun by the Assyrians, or the Babylonians, even the Medo-Persians, when they came back from their captivities, when they're overrun and destroyed by Titus's 12th legion in 70 AD, the Romans, and they're dispersed for almost 2,000 years, they always would say, next year in Jerusalem. Israel's their land, Jerusalem's their capital. Not because a president or a prime minister or a king decreed it so, God said so. And it's never gonna change. It's as sure as six days of, seven days of creation, it's as sure as the Ten Commandments, the Beatitudes of Jesus, and the fruit of the Spirit. That land belongs to the biological, physical descendants of Abraham through the son of promise, Isaac. Always has, always will. But here's something really unique when you think about the long war against the Jews, the pogroms. Those are the attacks and the persecutions of the Jews in Russia and Europe in the medieval times and whatnot, and, and all, really all over the world. Jews have been persecuted relentlessly. There's no people group that's ever been persecuted like the Jews in human history. And it's demonic. The attack against Jews is absolutely from the pit of hell and demonic because the Messiah of the world, our Savior, Jesus Christ, is a Jew, and he came through the Jews. And because the scriptures that declare to us Jesus is the Messiah came through the Jews. They're the stewards of the scriptures. And because Jesus is coming back to Israel to rule and reign in his second coming as king of the Jews and the king of kings and lord of lords. So nothing's going to negate that in what human beings do with human governments, not the UN, not any Middle Eastern governments or US government or any other government. God is true and every man's a liar and he's gonna do what he said he's gonna do and all those promises are yes and amen. But something that gets my attention from this text that reminds me of Israel and how they've been as a people group, think about this profoundly, especially people that know world history. In this story, they were given the ability, they were told they could plunder their enemies, which is what people do. I studied Africa in great extent last year, 1400s, 1300s, 1200s, North Africa, Central Africa, South Africa, all those regions. And let me tell you, these tribes, 
when you go back to the slave trade and all that stuff, and beginning with the Swedes getting the first group of tra- uh, slaves in like the 1300s, and then the Dutch, and everyone else coming in, the, the black slaves that were traded were captured by other tribes. And they captured them and sold them to the foreigners, the slave trade. And, and, and this is what they did. And as these tribes, uh, I studied Ghana in great detail, actually layers and layers of hi- history in Ghana. Because there's the Bible Training Center there in Ghana that we support, and I wanted to know more about it. So I did a full detailed study on the history of this country. And when these tribes conquer each other, they take everything that's theirs. They take their land, they take their possessions, they take their people. That's what they do. We saw that with Chitileomar and the kings back in Genesis. They take the people, they take the possessions, and they want to occupy the land because there's value in the land, there's value in the labor force of the people, and there's value in the possessions of the wealth that they have already acquired and what they have. So they steal everything. Like, so when the Nazis conquered the Jews in Europe, they stole all the wealth the Jews had built up for centuries in Europe, all the famous paintings, all the art, all this stuff. That generation of Jews were gassed in, the, in Auschwitz in those places. Their descendants, uh, a lot of them ended up in Israel to save their lives after the World War II was over, and the efforts by Mossad and others to re- replace these things have been very difficult to do. They're in museums, they're in private collections, and now it's three generations later, and it's just lost wealth. That's the history of humanity. So check this out. You notice when Israel was, when the Jews were defending themselves, what were they doing? Were they attacking for the offense to take? No. They were fighting to protect and defend. And the proof of it is they didn't plunder anybody. They didn't take anything from anybody. They fought to save their lives, which kind of takes us back to the American way, the right to defend yourself. It's in our Constitution. The right to bear firearms is there to defend yourself against people who come to take. That's American history. That's American culture. That's why people are so adamant about the Second Amendment. That's why a lot of people left this state in its demise of the Second Amendment and gone to other states where it's more firmly held up. If you've got a squatter in Florida, you can get them out in 10 days. That's your house. That's your wealth. If they don't pay the rent, you can get them out. And you can even show up with firearms to do so. That's your property protect. In California, you can have a squatter for three years. They don't pay rent. They destroy the property, and then they sue you because they blame the mold on you, and now you're in, a court, in your courtroom fighting a legal battle. It's a true story within this congregation right now. See, it's in God's decree that we have a right to defend our space and to defend what's been given to us. This is, a, this is, a, this is something that, that it's in us. When we had our boys in school, we told them, look, you don't provoke fights with anybody, but this is your space. And if someone comes in your space and attacks in that space, you have every right to defend yourself in that space. Thus, both Timmy and Luke did karate when they were younger, and they were taught self-defense to defend their space. Of course, the girls were smart to avoid situations, but to, you know, we're not going to passively roll over and let violent criminal people destroy us and take from us. That's just not, there's no virtue in that. There's no virtue in cowardice. There's virtue and courage. And these are men defending their wives and their children, defending their houses, defending their livelihood. And as they fought those who were going to take everything from them, they destroyed their enemies, but they didn't take what was their enemies. It's almost like everything they could have taken became a free will offering to the Lord. They didn't try to expand their borders, which brings us to modern Israel. You ever notice all the wars Israel's had since 1948? It's never them trying to invade something that God didn't give them. The Six-Day War, they were going to be attacked by all these different countries, and they preemptively struck them before they're going to be annihilated by these countries. 
When they took the Golan Heights, they were retaking what belonged to them, what God gave them. When they took the West Bank, they were reclaiming what God gave to them. When they took Gaza and the Sinai, they reclaimed what God gave them. In six days, they defeated three mighty nations, Egypt, Jordan, and Syria. God miraculously intervened, and he gave them back all their land. Now, the UN and the world has had like 80% of their decrees against them, but God gave them that land. And even in the modern conflict right now, they didn't go pick a fight with Jordan. They didn't go to Saudi Arabia and say, give us your oil. They didn't do this or do that. They were in their land, attacked in their land by perpetrating forces. And what they're doing right now is protecting and defending themselves and their, their stuff. Zionism is a phrase that means the right of Israel to exist as a nation. I am a Zionist, and I believe Israel has the right to own, occupy, defend at all costs every piece of land that God promised them through Father Abraham. And they can and they should. And whatever they need to do, preemptively strike terrorists in Lebanon or wherever they are, they need to do. And during the Yom Kippur War in 73, when they're almost destroyed, if you've, anyone here seen the movie Golda? It was out this year. Golda, raise your hand high so I can see. It's a great movie. It was intense. You know, it wasn't like an action movie. It was more like just the drama of people. But during the Six-Day War, or the Yom Kippur War, Golda Meir, who's the prime minister, Henry Kissinger and Nixon were bullet, you know, America's always the allies to defend them, and they're, they're in a bad situation. They were in a really bad situation. They're caught off guard on their highest holy day. That's what happened. Like these people in the Agai decree of Haman. But I'll tell you what happened. History shows this fact. Golda Meir opened up the missile silos of their nuclear weapons. They, Israel will nuke their enemies before they'll cease to exist in that land. That's what they're going to do. They have the nuclear weapons, and they will use the nuclear option. They will nuke their enemies before they will cease to exist as a people group and a nation. Golda Meir opened the missile silos so the spy planes of the U.S. could see she wasn't messing around. And so the U.S. stood down on threats against Israel, not to threaten them militarily, but to tone down what they were doing against their enemies. It's, it's no different. So I just want to point out to you, with all this noise against the Jews and this and that and the denial of things that happened October 7th and the Holocaust and all this stuff, it's mind-bending to me. But make no mistake, the land belongs to Israel. God promised it to them. It's theirs. And he's going to defend them, ultimately, because in the end, the world is going to come together against Israel and all these players that are against them right now, Iran, Syria, Russia, these people the kings of the east, China, because they're all bullying Israel right now, they're going to come together, and they're going to come to Israel. And they're going to invade Israel from the north, and they're going to come through the northern borders, which Hezbollah has all their missiles pointed at right now, and is threatening even a higher escalation even this day, right? If you're watching what happened in the news today. And in the end, they're going to try and overrun Israel, and we're told that God is going to appear, and he's going to protect Israel. He's going to defend Israel. That's what the Bible promises so I don't get upset with this stuff. You don't need to watch the news up and down every day like a football game or a tennis match. Which way is it going between Israel and the world? Let me tell you, Israel's going to be there till the end. The world's going to come against them. And when it seems like they have no defense, even maybe after a nuclear option, Damascus gets destroyed in one day. How does that happen? There's only so many ways that can happen, but Damascus gets destroyed in one day. The Bible says so. Then the Bible describes in Ezekiel where you can't go to certain places for seven years because the volatility of the bodies and you mark the bodies. That's so far ahead of its time for the type of 
type of attack you're talking about. Though this world as we know it is going to end it in the northern part of Israel, the Valley of Armageddon, Megiddo. So until it does, God's in control, and we live our lives as best we can as unto the Lord. But I, I bring this up because I haven't talked much about the Israeli thing since October 7th, and this is the text to talk about it. I believe God has blessed America profoundly because we have been their most staunch ally in all their conflicts since they became a nation in 1948. Because God said, whoever blesses Israel, I will bless. So for all the evil things we've done as a nation, and we've done a lot of them, all the injustices we've done as a nation, we've done a lot of them, and all the bad legal decisions we've made in recent years, which are a lot of them, we still seem to prosper and we're still the best country in the world. I think, and I personally believe that God blesses us, the United States, because our presidents, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, continue to stand with Israel, their right to exist, and defend themselves against their enemies that are just like these people in this chapter. So you need to know these things. Someone asked me why I'm not big on Israel in the pulpit. I'm not big on Israel in the pulpit because it's, it's not Jesus plus Israel and Zionism. I'm big on Jesus and the Word of God. But this is the Word of God, and this is that chapter that allows me and firmly decrees me to speak on these things as the pastor of this church to begin 2024. That's why I'm teaching on it. I'm not just randomly teaching on it topically. This is the text. People trying to completely eradicate the existence of the Jews. That is the text. And this has been going on ever since this time. But the proof of God's faithfulness to his people is the fact that Israel is there right now as a nation. And they're, they, they exist and they're going to continue to exist. And if anything, from, from being a Christian, a believer in Christ, it should strengthen our faith that all the promises in Jesus are yes and amen. Israel existing and having the capital in Jerusalem is just proof positive that everything God says is true. Let God be true and every man a liar. So no matter what all these people, the UN and all these people do with all their lies, their deceit, their deception, and all their cowardly hidings with their missiles behind hospitals and underground schools, it's all been revealed. They're evil, wicked people. Not the Israelis, but their enemies. God knows. And these things should move us because God's got this in his universe. But this is the context. And I just point out to you, the Jews did not plunder their enemies. They were defending themselves from people trying to destroy them, which is exactly what we have going on right now. So don't get baited on this stuff politically, and don't get baited on this stuff even more importantly spiritually. There's a place for the Jews, but our job is lifting up Jesus. Our job is the Great Commission, and our job is to shine for Jesus. So I'm not going to die on a hill as a Zionist. I'm going to die on a hill for Jesus and the blood of Christ and the Great Commission. Nonetheless, I'm certainly going to teach it in the context of this passage. Jesus loves Israel. Jesus is the King of the Jews. And all those promises of the reign of the Messiah are first and foremost for the Jews. That's the way it is, and we need to be aware of that. Christians who uh, attack the Jews or persecute the Jews, which they've done in human history, they are wrong, because there's people that believe there's replacement theology that the church replaces Israel. We do not replace Israel. We're the church, they're Israel. Do not confuse the two, okay? So they, they didn't lay hands on the plunder. They, they didn't start it. They defended themselves against this thing, and we need to know that. And that's how we want to be with Jesus. We don't start conflicts. I'm not trying to start conflicts. You're not trying to start conflicts. But like I taught my boys, this is your space, and, and you've got a right to protect that space. And each of them had to, in their school years, at least once defend that space. There's a protective element. We, we look to the Lord to be a protector, but you know, common sense is a great protector too. 
And I would never let anyone plunder my family or hurt my family before my eyes. They're going to have to kill me before they can harm. Someone would have to kill me before I'd let them harm my wife or my children or my grandchildren. And he'd be dealing with Joey Brand on a supernatural level like Samson in a jawbone. <laughs> and probably the same for you. Yeah, you, you, you would be. And uh, I know a little Krav Maga. And by the way, on Israeli self-defense Krav Maga, you know what I learned doing Krav Maga for a year? You never attack with Krav Maga. Krav Maga, Israeli Special Forces Defense Krav Maga, is defensive purposes only. It's never offensive. It's defensive to protect against attack. And the number one rule of Krav Maga, if we take a Krav Maga class down here in Huntington or somewhere else, you know what they're going to teach us? How to protect ourselves from attack and how to get away from it as soon as we're free from that attacker. All right, we read on verse 18. So that's the way it played out. And that's been coming for a couple months. So there it is, clean, tight, and biblical. Uh, you need to know, you know. Uh, verse 18. But the Jews who were at Sushan assembled together on the 13th day as well as on the 14th, on the 15th of the month. They rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who dwelt in the unwalled town celebrated the 14th day of the month of Adar with gladness and feasting as a holiday for sending presents to one another. And Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters to all the Jews near and far who were in all the provinces of King Assyrus to establish them that they should celebrate yearly the 14th and 15th day of the month of Adar as the days of which the Jews had rest from their enemies as the month with which was turned from joy to sorrow for them from mourning to a holiday. And that's what the Lord does for us. He, he's going to always, in the end, he's going to do that for us. Certainly in eternity, it'll work out that way. Whatever morning earth brings, eternity will bring joy, everlasting. That they should make them days of feasting and joy of sending presents to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted the custom which they had begun as Mordecai had written to them. Because Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agai, the enemy of all Jews, had plotted against the Jews to annihilate them and cast pur, that is lot, like rolling the dice, to consume them and destroy them. But when Esther came before the king, he commanded by letter that this wicked plot, which Haman had devised against the Jews, should return on his own head, and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows, which, of course, is exactly what happened. So they called these days Purim after the name Pur, therefore, because of the words of this letter, what they had seen concerning this matter and what had happened to them, the Jews established and imposed it upon themselves and their descendants and all who would join them that without fail they should celebrate these two days every year according to the written instructions and according to the prescribed time that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, which it has been, and every family, every province, and every city that these days of Purim should not fail to be observed among the Jews, that the memory of them should not perish among their descendants, and it has not. It's awesome. Then Queen Esther, verse 29, the daughter of Abihail the, with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm the second letter about Purim, the holiday, the feast that is. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus with words of peace and truth. Yeah, words of peace and truth. To confirm these days of Purim at their appointed time as Mordecai the Jew the, and Queen Esther had prescribed for them as they decreed for themselves and their descendants concerning matters of their fasting and lamenting. So the decree of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim and were written in the book. As I mentioned, Purim is celebrated by the Jews every year. If you just Google like the history of Purim, you'll see all during the medieval times in Europe and all this, not, this and that. It's taken on different, different forms of the custom, just like you know, our holidays like Christmas and you know, Easter and Thanksgiving where holidays take on different things. But the, 
the Israelis, the Jews, tend to celebrate this holiday with dressing up in costumes, uh, and it's related to the book. There are costumes in the book. They, they wore different outfits, right? They also wear costumes because God was hidden throughout the whole book. You never see his name in this book, but he was working, so he's kind of veiled. So that's one of the reasons they do that. They exchange gifts. But here's what we really want to think about, the, the validity of the Bible and the Word of God. Isn't it amazing that this story of Esther is in the Bible? And right now, all over the world, in March, Jewish believers and ethnic descendants of Jews, because you have Jews that are ethnic and Jews, people convert to Judaism, they're going to celebrate this feast all over the world. This great King Ahasuerus, who even, they, we don't celebrate him. We celebrate Esther, the woman of faith, who said, you know, for such a time as this, and if I perish, I perish. We celebrate her. We celebrate God's faithfulness to the Jewish people, God's faithfulness to his people of covenant in all covenants in all generations. So here you go, 2,500 years later, the enemies of the Jews still trying to exterminate them, and 2,500 years later, the Jewish people still celebrating God's faithfulness to them every March. So it's just, oh man, the word of God is amazing. But God said, put me to the test. I tell you things before they happen. And the accuracy of God's word is 100%. Now, this final thing that we get here is this chapter 10. King Arasuerus imposed tribute on the land, that is taxes, and on the islands of the sea. Now, all the acts of his power and his might and the account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Medea and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second to King Artaxerxes, and was great among the Jews, and well received by the multitude of his brethren, seeking the good of his people, and speaking peace to all of his countrymen. Yeah, isn't that what we want? Just to live in peace, to speak good, speak truth, and live in peace. Some people just don't want that, but that's what we're we're told in the New Testament that we're to desire to live a quiet, peaceful life and glorify the Lord with that. First Thessalonians chapter four. But it says that he advanced. And so on this new year, just a little word on advancement. The Lord promotes. You know, let, the Lord lifts up one. He brings down another. And I just want to remind all, especially the younger people here tonight, that the Lord gives advancement. But as we prepare ourselves for advancement, the advancement comes. As we put forth the effort to prepare ourselves, then we're ready to go through that open door. When you see Joseph in the Old Testament advancing, when you see Esther advancing, and you just see in church history men and women who, if you will, move up in the whole affairs of things, they do so because their hearts were right, they were diligent and faithful, and they increased. Joseph in the book of Genesis increases because he's faithful in every juncture of his life. Jesus, when he taught about the parable of the talents, he said the one that had five and got ten well done, and to the joy of your Lord, now you can do this. When he told the same story in the Gospel of Luke, he said, you had, you had five talents, you made ten talents, now you're going to be over ten cities. The increase came from the faithfulness of where you were and learning those things, which then opened the door for where you're going. In other words, we'll use baseball for a minute. If you can't hit a major league curveball, you've got to stay in double-A baseball. And you're pro, but you're down here. But if you're going to be playing for the Dodgers with Shohei Otani, you better not hit a curveball. And, you, the, you know, Coach Roberts doesn't want you up in, in the big leagues if you can't hit a curveball. You, you, have to be, you have to be able to hit a 91-mile-an-hour curveball. You have to be able to hit the, the, heat, the fastball. Like, you have to be ready for each thing. The Lord's not going to embarrass us and put us in situations we're not ready for. So it's, a, it's, a, it's the free will 
self-determination with the sovereignty of God, that we prepare ourselves, thus we're prepared for the next thing God has for us. And we're faithful here, and then he gives us more there. So Mordecai, we talked about this. Mordecai was the same person, whether he's wearing sackcloth and ashes in front of the king's palace over the decree, or whether he's the man with the king's royal robe putting new laws to offset the decree. He was the same person, but he was always faithful and true and going forward. That's how we want to be. We want to, we want to, we want to be better. We want, that's why I say I want to be a better version at the end of this year than last year, because then I can be entrusted with more. If we have that person, we have we realize that divine purpose and that personal faith, and then we have a positive attitude because we have all those promises, and then we have big dreams because we see God's faithfulness in the past, and we see that He's going to be guiding our steps in the future, and we can keep going forward, onward, and upward from glory to glory. That's what the Lord has. We never want to be going in reverse. It's always advancement with the Lord. It may not look like advancement, how people define advancement, but the Lord, it's advancement. So I encourage you as you look at this new year, body of Christ, keep the Lord first, have faith, and, and, and do the things that lead to advancement, and let him advance us, yes? For his glory, one life, yes and amen.